This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights, created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Orstano. I played Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I played Billy Riggins. Our assumption is that you, our audience, have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, go watch Friday Night Lights, which is currently streaming on Netflix and Peacock TV because there will be spoilers in our podcast. And as always, we have merch. That's right. So please go check out our brand new website designed by Eleanor Carez, who is at Eleanor Carez on Instagram. Our website is www.cleareyesfullheartspod.com. Once again, that's cleareyesfullheartspod.com. Now you can go on there. We've got hoodies. We've got all kinds of great stuff. This would be a perfect time to get that special someone, a landing strip t-shirt or, you know, hoodie or something like that. Nothing says, I love you, sweetie, like a, a landing strip t-shirt, you know, a day after Valentine's Day. There you go. Happy Valentine's Day. Also, we still want to answer your questions. Anything you've been dying to know or just want Eric and I to know in general, you can email us at clearasfullheartspod at gmail.com. Today, we are talking about season one, episode 21, Best Laid Plans, written by Carrie Aaron and directed by Jeffrey Reiner. Here's our NBC television synopsis. After being pressured by Texas Methodist University, Coach Taylor makes a rash decision that disrupts his future in Dylan and upsets his family. There is a lot to cover today. So before we get into season one's penultimate episode, we're going to go ahead and answer some fan questions. Let's get to it. All right, our first question comes from Charlie Ziersel, who says, if you were going to represent the Panthers as a fan, which character's jersey slash hoodie slash shirt slash merchandise would you choose? <laughs> he says, my answer is 33 for the jersey, number seven for the shirt, and a hoodie for Coach Taylor. Stacy, what would yours be? I'm going to say it. Derek's going to get mad at me. Can I get a Voodoo Panthers jersey? No, they don't make those. So, <laughs> And I think I just want a, a parka, a coach parka. I'm surprised, Stacey, because you're a person who, I mean, you're literally wearing a hoodie right now. I'm surprised that your answer yeah. wouldn't be hoodie because you wear a hoodie pretty much everywhere all the time. I have a 33 hoodie. Do you? I, do. I don't have, I have a, a Panthers 33 hoodie. I don't have anything 33. And I know that oh, Billy God. Riggins wore 33 as well. I have a Team Riggins t-shirt. That's good. I don't wear it out in no. public. It feels a little strange. It's, they're like my workout clothes. I was literally in, uh, I was in Nashville. Tennessee, I was working on that movie, 42, and I had an East Dillon Lions t-shirt and I was in the elevator. I never wear this thing, but I was wearing it because it was laundry day. And so I was coming down the elevator to go do laundry at the hotel laundromat or whatever. And as I'm coming down the elevator, this woman goes, I like your shirt. And I was like, oh yeah. And she's like, where'd you get that? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and I didn't say anything. And I just, I think because it was Nashville, she just didn't put two and two together. Like, why would Billy Riggins be in an elevator in Nashville, Tennessee? And I said Nashville. I wasn't in Nashville. I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I don't know why I said Nashville. That changes the entire story. Changes everything. I think I would have a 33 jersey, obviously, for shirt, landing strip shirt. Mm -hmm. And for, oh, if, if there was a hoodie, what would the hoodie be? 
Maybe a Riggins Riggs hoodie. I think we could get you that. I think I have all those things now because I've gotten merchandise from our store. Merch, baby. What's the next question, Stacey? This second question comes from Megan Cochran, who wants to know, when the Panthers would have a road game, did the shows just use the same football field and redress it to look like a different stadium? Or did you sometimes shoot at other fields? Take it away. Uh, That is a great question. A lot of times. Most of the time, frankly, we would just go ahead and repaint the end zones and put the extras in, in different colored wardrobe, you know, to make it look like it was a home game for them. And we put up banners for the other, the opposing team or whatever. There were times, mm-hmm. though, where we shot away games at an away location. I remember one specifically when we shot the episode Kingdom in season five. So, and, you know, anytime that we played at one of the bigger stadiums like Texas Stadium in Dallas, like the old Texas Cowboy Stadium. In the Cotton Bowl. We played in the Cotton Bowl. We played at UT's stadium. But yeah, most of the stuff was shot on location, though. Well, everything was shot on location. It was shot at the Panthers' home field. They would just redress it. But that's a great question. Oh, and here's another interesting thing. When we shot the pilot, we actually shot the pilot on Pflugerville's football field. And then for the actual show, they built a stadium. There was an old stadium there, but they built up the stands and put in field turf and made it this like really, really beautiful stadium that's now like basically overrun with grass and no one uses it anymore. It's kind of falling apart. I just sad. want you to say Pflugerville football field five times. Pfluger, I already screwed it up. No, but don't. Pflugerville football stadium, Pflugerville football stadium, Pflugerville football stadium, Pflugerville football stadium, Pflugerville football, football, football field. All right, we're done. Next question. Oh, this is my question to ask. Okay. Our third question, which comes from an anonymous listener, says Kyle Chandler's coach is, is, in my opinion, one of the greatest TV dads of all time, right up there with Hal from Malcolm in the Middle. If Kyle didn't exist, you hearing this, Stacey? If Kyle didn't exist, oh God. who? I don't want to live in I that world. I don't want to live in that world either, but Stacey, this is the hypothetical that we've been dealt <laughs> by our anonymous listener. If Kyle didn't exist, who would you guys recast to take on that role? I actually gave this one a lot of thought, but I'm interested to see what Stacey has to say. I honestly didn't read the question beforehand. I did. I cheated. (laughs) Tell me yours. I need to think. I thought a young Matthew McConaughey would be interesting. I'm not saying he's Kyle. I'm just saying he would be interesting. I'm not mad at that. This is the one that I think I stole from you, Stacey. James Walk or Wolk. I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name from Ordinary Joe. Wolk. Absolutely. You know I'm desperate. I've already started a script where... Jimmy and Kyle play brothers. Kyle's obviously like a much older brother. Jimmy reminds me so much of Kyle. It's ridiculous. They have those same like puppy dog eyes, those eyebrows. And there's also just a a, a genuinely like, he strikes you as like a good guy. He also is a good yeah. guy. Just so freaking likable. Yeah, just to really like it. For, for those of you who don't know, the guy that we're talking about, is his last name Woke or? Woke, yeah. He's on the show Ordinary Joe, but he was also on a show with Annie. Lone Star. Called Lone Star that was kind of short-lived. Mm-hmm. But I, I got to meet him a couple times. He was a really, really nice guy but he, i mean stacy and i were so always good. like dude this guy is like a young kyle chandler like freakishly so yeah my last one to play coach mm-hmm. maybe ryan gosling yeah i'm not mad at that either as stacy said i don't want to imagine a world without kyle in this role i think mm-hmm. kyle's spectacular in it but if i had to that's what i'm thinking i wonder who was on the short list mm-hmm. before kyle like when they were writing it who like who peter had in his mind i know that when kyle was originally cast for this part peter berg was or not cast for it but when he was his name was originally brought up yeah pete berg was like no way he said the guy from early edition the cat show with the newspaper he was like no not a chance and our amazing casting director linda lowey said you know you ought to check out he's going to be on an episode of gray's anatomy i want you to watch this episode of gray's anatomy and it was the one where kyle chandler plays the swat team captain the bomb the bomb, yeah, the expert. bomb expert and he 
has kind of a relationship with, I believe, Izzy. Or no, he has a relationship with Gray. Not a relationship. He gets blown up in front of her. No, but they kind of have like a connection. There was a connection between his character and her. They do have a connection because he comes back. God, welcome to our Grey's Anatomy podcast. Mm -hmm. He comes back later when she's starting to have visions of all the people she cared about that died. And he's like a ghost in her head. But anyway, they went and had lunch or something like that. And Kyle had gone out the night before, had a couple of drinks and had a little bit of scruff. Like this guy looks totally different. Peter Berg said, keep the scruff if you get this gig. I I like where that's at. And so Coach always had not scruff per se, but like a little teeny, teeny bit of five o'clock shadow. That was how Kyle wound up getting the gig. So I don't know who was on that short list originally. I mean, but if you look at the movie, Billy Bob Thornton, who couldn't be more of a different type than Kyle Chandler, really and truly. Anyway, I'm glad we don't live in a world where that has to be a thing we think about. And I remember, honestly, I mean, this is my own stupidity because I didn't know Kyle Chandler except for early edition. And I remember when I found out that he was the lead, you know, Billy Bob Thornton had already been an established, amazing actor, blah, 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 blah. I wasn't really familiar with Kyle's work. And so when I found out he was the lead, I was like, they went with that guy? I couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, he's spectacular in this role. These were great questions, guys. Thank you again for reaching out. It it makes our job easier, and we love answering them. So uh, with no further ado, let's jump into this episode, Stacey. knows that Tim sleeps over and I'm wondering why these covert into the bush operations have to happen. I'm sorry, real quick. You do realize you said Bo knows, right? I know. That's why I put a little oh, hot Oh my it. goodness. Does Bo know that Tim is staying over? He said after the game, he said to Tim, hey, are you going to sleep over again? Are you going to spend the night again or something? Huh. He might know that, but he's not aware of Tim being half naked in his mother's bed. And that might be part of the reason they crawled out the window. Hey, Tim Riggins, are you going to sleep over again? <laughs> I love that he calls him Tim Riggins every time. This whole situation is about to come to a head. You can kind of feel it. Jackie's got a real dilemma on her hands here. It's just another thing that this show does so well. You can tell that she really does like Tim. And we all know that Tim really likes Bo, but she also knows that this relationship really and truly, it it can't go anywhere because of the age difference. And she knows that Bo is aching for a father and that Tim's a great guy and all, but he's not ready to be a dad. He's not ready to take on that responsibility. When Brooke Langdon is looking at Tim, talking to, to Bo in this scene, it breaks my heart because I know that she is sitting there watching it going, this has to end. And I kind of feel like she's formulated that idea in her head in an effort to protect her child. Lots of hard scenes in this episode. Hard stuff. Mm -hmm. Hey, do you happen to know where this TMU stuff was shot? That stadium's gorgeous. I just don't know where it was. I actually do know where that stuff was shot. And it's really cool behind the scenes kind of story here. So they shot all the TMU stuff at Texas State University, which was formerly Southwest Texas State. For those of us who grew up in the late 90s or were in college in the late 90s, we knew Southwest very well because they changed their name shortly after Playboy named them the number one party school in the country. Yeah. So Southwest in, I believe it was like 2003, became Texas State University. And it's located in San Marcos, which is about 35 minute drive south of Austin. A lot of the exterior small town shots on the show were actually shot in San Marcos. Got a really beautiful old timey town square in San Marcos. So they shot a lot of exteriors there for the show. So that's a cool little tidbit of information. Also, these scenes where coaches walking on the TMU field, they were shot on Texas State's field. But if you look closely, you'll notice that they added the Austin City skyline in the background. So they superimposed that in post-production. They also added extra stands in post-production 
to make that stadium look gigantic because that stadium, it's a big stadium, but they made that stadium look like it was a massive D1 stadium. That's where it was all shot, Stace. Fancy. And then TMU is, man, playing hardball with Coach. I was watching this show thinking about the collective gasp that must have happened across America when this aired originally, when Coach says, I accept. The crazy thing about it is that he accepts. And you know, I mean, every decision that is made with Coach is made with Coach and Tammy. And this is a decision that he makes on his own. I don't want to say it's rash because he's kind of pushed into a corner and has to make a decision here. And it's going to come back and there's going to be major problems with this decision. In fact, this decision that he made real quickly is going to affect the outcome of the next season, even of this show. So yeah, this one quick rash decision has a lot of consequences. Just seems no matter what he chooses, nobody wins. Yeah. Like he can't he can't win in any of these decisions. No. And it's what this show does so well. It presents a dilemma and yeah. Tyra says she doesn't have anybody that she can talk to. And I was thinking, but you could you could talk to Mindy. And then I realized how ridiculous that was. And she probably can't. Yeah. I, I, the, the scene that we're talking about is the first time that we see Tyra after the assault has happened. She hasn't been going to school. And Landry comes by to check on her, make sure she's doing okay. And Landry's really worried about her. That's the thing I love about Landry is he's got her best interests at heart. And he's, he's legitimately worried about her. And he asked her, is there anyone that she's told about this? And she's got to talk to somebody, right? I think we forget sometimes that these are just kids. And she hasn't gone to the police. She hasn't gone to her parents. She hasn't gone to her sister. And she's just going to kind of suck it up, be the tough chick that she is. But I think Landry knows that that's probably not the best idea. But yeah, talking to Mindy, probably not the best idea either. There was also such a, an FNL moment when Tyra opens the door, that sunlight mm-hmm. just beams into her face and she's squinting and she can barely see. And like on any other show, they wouldn't let the actor get away with yeah. that. But it worked so well because it made me think she's been shut in her house and has not looked outside. Even that over the shoulder shot. I mean, I'm going to talk more about locations later in this episode, but it really kind of strikes me a lot in this episode for whatever reason, the locations. I love the shot where we see Landry walking up because you get to see that front yeah. yard of the Colette house, which is really a little house in the middle of nowhere. It gives you this idea that the Colette family is also kind of isolated from Dylan. While they're a part of this town, there's also an isolation that they have, that they're on the outskirts of town. They're so poor that they can't even afford to be in the city limits. Yeah, it's just this little kind of ramshackle shack in the middle of nowhere. Locations on this show, you cannot get this anywhere else. You can't build that. You can't build that set. You can't build that exterior and you can't replicate it. So Street is, I guess, at the DMV and we find out that he's going to be a fully accredited high school coach, assistant coach. Listen, this is still a kid and he has not graduated. He doesn't even have a GED. Yeah. You always ask these questions, Stace, like, I I don't know what the answer is. I did not Google. (laughs) I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that an assistant coach doesn't need a diploma. I do know this much. Like a head coach most definitely needs a a, a diploma. Most of the time, if I'm not mistaken, a head coach needs a, a bachelor's degree. But I'm going to tell you right now, Stacey, when I was in high school, we had some shady coaches some assistant coaches. We had some very questionable coaches. I know of one in particular was an ex-felon. <laughs> I probably shouldn't go into it. I feel like if I was, the given circumstances are a little different because Jason did go through something so traumatic. But if I was, say, 16 or 17 years old and somebody that I grew up with was suddenly in a position of power or authority over me, I would laugh in their face and say, absolutely not. You are not my boss. Possibly. You would, probably. 
But here's the difference. Here's the difference. Jason Street was the leader of this team. Jason Street was the quarterback on this team that was going to take everybody to the state. He was the promised one. And on top of it, he's beyond mature for his years, which we already know. And then he more than backed it up on the field. So he was a natural born leader. I think that it's a little bit different. If he was just some scrub on the team or if he was just an average player on the team who got injured and now he's coming in there. That's not who Jason Street was. Jason Street was the number one quarterback in the country, arguably the greatest quarterback ever in the history of high school football. You're right. He was the leader of the team, too. Like, he already sort of had that position of authority. I mean, look at how his offensive linemen reacted with the whole entire situation with Lila. I mean, these guys, he was one step below, like, straight-up worship in this town. I would agree with you on in most instances, but I think that this one, they've covered their tracks. What's your next problem with this episode, Stacey? What's the next thing you're going to point out? I will tell you my next problem oh, with boy. this episode is that we are in episode 21, and it has taken us this long to see this side of Jesse Plemons, the actor, the side that we all know so well now. But this scene where he finally breaks down and tells Matt what's going on, that's the Jesse that's become the actor that he has always been in him. But it took us this long for us to finally like dig in and see the stuff that Jesse does. I've probably said this once again ad nauseum on this show, but this is one of the things that I love so much about Friday Night Lights and what makes this show so great. Landry says it in this scene even. He says, what am I, comic relief for the star quarterback? And the reality is that up until this point, that's exactly what he's been. But in this episode and in multiple episodes, episodes upcoming, we get to see another side of Landry. We get to see a big-hearted, sensitive, caring, strong young man. He's no longer a joke. He's a force to be reckoned with. And I mean, kudos to Carrie Aaron and the rest of the writers and to Jesse Plemons. I got to have these moments on this show, and I'm so thankful for it. And you also got to have these moments on this show. Because both of us were a little bit of comic relief on this show as well for multiple seasons. And then the writers trusted us with some moments as, as the show went on. They gave us opportunities to, to show what we can do as actors and to really drive story. I love those moments on this show. And most of our main characters get to have them at some point in time. Even Brad Leland's gotten to have one of those moments already. You kind of think that he's just this one way. And then, boom, we have that moment with him where he comes down from the stands and he's talking to Lila and he says, you're my daughter. You're more important to me than football will ever be. But I love those moments because every time that the writers gave it to one of the actors, those actors crushed it. Crushed it every time. I know people might have some problems with some stuff that's coming up in season two, but the problem is never with the performance. No, the problem is never with I mean, with Jesse, Jesse was so damn good in those scenes. He's so good in everything. But I think in some respects, this is the launching pad for the career that he's had. Because of the way he handled those those scenes in the second season, I think there's a lot of people that were like, I didn't know he could do that. Damn good actor. Jumping onto this next scene here, this Julian Matt scene after Coach tells the family that he's taking the job is just riddled with tension. And it's not just because of the consequences that it's going to have on their relationship, but on the consequences that with the whole town of Dylan. Because now Saracen is the only person outside the Taylor family that actually knows that Coach is taking this job. And it just breaks my heart because I love Matt and Julie. Everyone in this episode goes over to the Saracen house and cries. Tyra finally, I guess, gets drug in. It seems a little bit against her will, but maybe not so much to talk to the cops and to tell them what happened. And this is another one that's so hard for me to watch. Loving Tyra and Annie 
But often when a person has to go in and retell their story, it can feel like being assaulted all over again. I mean, I've never had to experience it myself firsthand, but I know too many women that have had to go through this. And I just can't even imagine what that must feel like. And on top of it, I feel like whether it's justified or not, Tyra feels like there was a betrayal because Landry told Tammy about this. And I know that Landry literally is looking out for her. He's got her best interests at heart. And at the end of the day, I think he did the right thing. I think that shows how much he cares about her because I think he knew going into this that this might wind up ruining their relationship, but he cared so much about her that he told Tammy anyway. Do we know at this point in our show that his dad is a cop no, or does that come no. later? We don't find that don't? out until later. Interesting. Yeah. To me, that was reasoning behind why he did what he did. But I guess if we don't know that, it might be projecting. But yeah, I mean, listen, he did. Landry did the right thing, even though it's not easy. No. And that is the sign, I think, of, of someone who truly loves somebody is that willingness to say, I want you to be happy and I want what's best for you, despite my own interests. Tammy's such a safe space, too, though. Yeah. It was like the perfect person to talk to. But man, that scene afterwards, when Tyra comes out and yells at, at Landry, she says, you're nothing but a smelly, pathetic geek or something like that. It just It's a knife yes. through my heart because I know where the anger's coming from and the sense of betrayal is coming from with Tyra, but it kills me for Landry because at the end of the day, I think that his character just feels like that's all anyone sees him as and they will they won't be able to see past that. A lot of heavy stuff in this episode. <gasps> Kyle and Connie, <laughs> the two of them together. Okay, so Coach and Tammy have this talk on the couch and where Tammy says they need to talk and Coach just starts giggling. I am notorious for giggling when I'm uncomfortable or in uncomfortable situations. Mm -hmm. And I just fully understand. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know why I'm laughing, but something bad is about to happen. It goes back to what we were saying at the start of this episode, talking about Kyle and the simplicity of the way he plays scenes. Because what he does, it's such a natural thing. Yeah, we've all been guilty of laughing in those moments. But to actually do that on camera, it's not scripted. You know that that's mm -hmm. just him going, ha, 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 this is going to get uncomfortable, isn't it? This is going to get uncomfortable. But this scene in general, it's another reason why I love this show. I, and another reason why this show is still relevant, in my opinion. This is a real relationship. People having wants and desires and needs and dreams, but also having to take into consideration the wants and desires and needs and, and dreams of the people that they love. And then also realizing that sometimes those things are in conflict. And we've talked about it before, but good storytelling doesn't tell you how to, how to feel. It just presents the issue. And life is complicated, as we've said. Sometimes there isn't a right answer. And this is one of those moments. Mm. And it's brilliantly written, once again, by Carrie Aaron and brilliantly shot and acted by all three actors, Connie, Amy, and Kyle. They just hit it out of the park. And I also wanted to give a big shout out to our camera crew on this, specifically David Boyd, who DP'd this episode. I love the way the sunlight is bouncing off Connie and Kyle on this scene. I mean, even to our set department, everything looks lived in. That's what makes FNL feel real is it's the camera work. You're a fly on the wall. But it's also these sets and the way it's lit. It's lit with this like kind of the sunlight's coming through that window. That's, that's not real sunlight. Might be partial sunlight, but it's being bounced in. That's a lighting design. And it just feels natural. It feels real. It feels lived in. It's not brilliantly lit and everyone's perfectly lit. That's not how life is. That's not what my place looks yeah, like. Yeah, we don't do pretty lighting. Yeah, that's not what my place looks like at 5 p.m. in the afternoon when the sun's about to set. It looks gritty. And it, if you don't have any lights on, that's what it looks like. And that's what it feels like. It feels like they just came home from school and then this conversation mm -hmm. happened. So we get our first taste of Street as actual coach. <laughs> 
this is like a, an old school buddy cop movie, the way that he and coach just fall into rhythm. It would be, I guess, good cop, bad cop, but I'm going to call the two of them bad cop, worse. <laughs> I think that's probably the best way to call it. Yeah. They both kind of do a tag team on Saracen here. <laughs> it gets ugly real quick. You thought it was tough dealing with coach. Wait till street comes in. Some comic gold. It really was. Waverly, I cannot get over how wise beyond her years and mature this girl is. She is a teenage girl and she gives Smash a hall yeah, pass. Yeah, she puts their relationship on hiatus because the state championship is coming up and she's like, no, I don't want you having to worry about me or focus on me. Go do whatever you need to do. Get it out of your system and I'll be here when you get back. Kind of like, what? You crazy? It's an incredibly grown up form of thinking, especially in those years where you get really clingy and needy and a little controlling. Do not let, don't look at anybody else. Don't talk to that girl. Beyond grown up. I wish I had that girlfriend when I was in college or in high school. You wish you had that girlfriend now, giving out hall passes. That's true. I do wish I had that girlfriend now. Not, I don't want the hall pass. What I want is, hey, when I've got something important going on in my life, I need your support or I need you to get out of the way. One or the other. Yeah. I'm going to give you a little bit of space What I don't right need now. is you Thank to, you. you know, try and sabotage what I got going on. Oh, my. I might be getting angry about some previous stuff that's happened in my life. I'm not. Okay. Next question. Derek, do we need to dive into no, this? No, we need to move on. Okay. Well, then here's what I'm moving on yes. to. And don't, I don't want you to like get used to this. Okay. Billy was right. He said that this would go bad by state. And what do you know? Tim's relationship is going bad. Yeah. Hey, I'm sorry, Stacy. I had a little problem with my uh, my headphones there. Yeah, is that belly was right? Can you, re- belly was can you repeat that for me? I just said it. Belly is that what belly was Okay. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, Billy was right again because oh, Billy God. did predict, as I said, the soothsayer of Dylan, the oracle of Dylan, predicted <laughs> that uh, yeah, that things would go bad right before state, and they kind of are. In this particular case, though, Billy's probably gloating. Derek Phillips, I don't think he's gloating. Because what it means is it's the culmination of some awful stuff. It winds up leading to this scene with Bo and Tim where Tim tells him that they need to take a break from hanging out. And it, uh, it just breaks my heart because both these kids need someone in their lives to care about them. Bo needs a father. Tim needs a father figure. But I think what Tim needs more than anything right now is just someone to care about and someone that cares about him. And the idea that he's not going to be able to be around this kid anymore. Especially when he lives so close. It's not like they're not going to see each other. It breaks my heart. But they're not allowed to hang. That's hard. And on top of it, I think he really had a thing for Jackie. This episode's just riddled with a lot of really heavy stuff. It's a lot. Not heavy, but terrifies me. The thought of a single Buddy Garrity. A Buddy Garrity on the prowl in Dylan, Texas. (laughs) Well, yeah, Pam breaks the news to the Garrity family that they're, they're getting a divorce. And this obviously is... Bad news for the women of Dylan. <laughs> it means there's a single Buddy Garrity out there. It might mean my tips go way up at the landing strip, though. It's good for Mendy, bad for the rest of the women in Dylan. <laughs> but I really feel for Lila in this scene. You talk about the crappiest year of crappy years. This girl's been through the ringer this year. We talked about this in the last episode or, or maybe the episode before that, where she kind of had this idyllic life. Everything had always worked out for Lila Garrity. And her whole entire kingdom has come crashing down in this season. And it's only going to get worse 
later in this episode. Oh, I thought you meant, are you going to say like it gets worse later on in the story? I'm sure it does, but I don't know. I think she's about to come through it. You know what I mean? There's, there is going to be a light at the end of the tunnel, but yeah, this episode is maybe not it. Speaking about Lila and this life that she thought she was going to have and who she was going to become, I'm finding this dichotomy that's living inside of Jason Street right now. So incredibly interesting to watch. And the new girl, the tattoo girl is everything that he's becoming. She only knows him post-trauma and this new man and this new life that he's becoming. And then there's Lila on the other side of his life who was just tied up into everything that was his past Mm -hmm. and the person that he's not anymore. The presentation of it is fascinating to me. We've spoken about how Susie is basically the polar opposite of Lila Garrity, but Street is the polar opposite of who he was when he was the hotshot quarterback. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's tough to watch these two fall out of love, especially from where we started in the pilot where they were just the perfect couple. And as I said, I mean, it all comes crashing down. Stace, I totally forgot that this scene even happened where Lila catches Street making out with Susie. I don't know why, but I forgot that I that knew, scene I, I'd never seen it, but they were in the truck mm. and I was like, oh God, Lila left her house. Yep, yep, yep. She's obviously, ca- oh God. And then you, I was like, oh. And talk about pouring salt on an already open wound. I mean, she just finds out that her parents are getting divorced. And runs over to Jason, who's the one person that she can talk to about this, who could potentially console her in this moment of need. And she finds out that Jason is now hooking up with with Susie. And it all comes to a head. She throws her engagement ring at, at Street and is like, we're done. I hate to see it happen, but there's a part of me that also says that I think that this is probably the best thing going forward for both of them. I absolutely agree. They're not the same people they were. I have this image of like a dam bursting and they're putting wood up over it, trying to plug up this dam. Yeah, and it's just, just it's just popping in yeah. different sections everywhere. That's kind of their relationship. Absolutely. It, it's like Band-Aids on a open wound. Yeah. Let it go, kids. Yeah. Time to move on. Here is my, maybe my favorite line <laughs> of Friday Night Lights so far. And I'm going to do my best impression. How about Saracen sleeping with Coach's daughter? I was eating a cookie and I spit out my cookie and I love cookies. So a little mad at Taylor. (laughs) It is literally one of my favorite lines ever on Friday Night Lights. And not just the line, (gasps) but the reaction to the line. Because you can hear a pin drop. (laughs) And the camera work, it's all of it. It's Taylor with the stupid look on his face. And no one reacts to it. It's the comic bombing on stage. It is arguably the most awkward silence in the history of film. (laughs) I knew it was coming. I did not. I remember watching that scene with Taylor when it first came out. Because we would always get the DVD copy of the show about a day beforehand. And we would go over to his place and watch that episode. And I mean, just crying, laughing and rewinding it and playing it again. It kills me. (laughs) And it's also, we've talked about this as well, but the writers finally giving tailored more stuff where he can kind of carry the comedy because he's hysterical. He's hysterical. So the writers are finally figuring out to give Taylor more of the comedy and to give Jesse more of the serious Interesting, stuff. right? That's perfect. Yeah. I also wanted to talk in this moment, once again, about our location scouts because they do such a wonderful job on this show of finding these places to shoot in. I'm almost positive, Stacy, that this is where we got married, where they're having the roast. Really? I think so. I could be wrong, but I think so because we did get married at a I lodge. Could be wrong. We did get married in a in a lodge. Yeah, like the Elks Lodge. I think this, well, and this was the Moose Lodge. I'm pretty sure it's the same one and it had the wood paneling, but I love that they're using this. You can't build something like that. I mean, you can, but it's just not the same. It just screams small town Texas. And once again, a big shout out to our camera operators on this episode. And I'm going to call them out by name. It was Todd McMullen, 
Heather Page and Ian Ellis. Todd McMullen would wind up later episodes becoming the director of photography. And we'll talk about that as we go on. All those guys and gals, Heather Page. Shout out, Heather. Heather's a beast. I love her. <laughs> Heather went on to become the head of the Texas Film Commission later on. Yeah, we're going to have them on soon. And Todd and Heather are married. So it's two camera operators. They are uh, Todd McMullen and Heather Page that are, are married. And Ian Ellis, who was also the third camera operator. But they do such a wonderful job, especially in this scene, of picking up all these little details. I don't know if you guys know how complicated it can be sometimes when you got... I, Probably in this scene, there's like 15 main characters, maybe 16. Yeah, and then all the extras. And you're picking up all these little bits and three cameras mm -hmm. going at once. So another reason why that joke works that Tim has is the reaction shots. You're getting all the reaction yeah. shots of people looking down at their food and rolling their eyes or going, oh boy, that's uncomfortable. And that's what makes it work, that uncomfortable silence along with those cuts that our camera operators are getting. It is so hard to find that stuff, guys. And they do just an amazing job of, of picking up those little details. We probably haven't spoken enough about the amazing camera work on this show. And I mean, we could literally in every episode talk about it, but this is one in particular where yeah. it just kind of stood out to me because I know as an actor and being on set how difficult it could be to find all those little moments. And all the storylines they were telling at one time, yeah. like Matt knowing about Coach that they're leaving, Tyra looking at Tammy because she just saw Sort of saved her a little bit and the football players trying to roast and smash be mad at buddy like all those things happening in one scene and we catch all yeah, of it it's brilliant it really is. i am dying to know if landry's line to tyra was scripted when he was talking about riggins and his cute but tragic texas forever routine yeah i don't know Dying. So what we're talking about is the scene that comes right after the roast has happened and Tyra comes over basically to apologize to Landry for, for kind of losing it on him the other day when they were at the police station. And Landry's rightfully so pissed off because not only did Tyra say some pretty awful things to him, but then on top of it, she's back to doing the same old thing, or at least from his perspective, the same old thing, which is... Yeah, showing up with Riggins. He's a guy who has done nothing but cheat on her, treat her like crap, drink too much, and Landry's sitting here going, you got the perfect thing right here in front of you and you can't see it. And I think all of us, you live a certain amount of life and we've all had that. There's always been that person. I know I've had it where you have feelings for someone and it's just not reciprocated. It's tough, especially when you know that you're the right person for that person or, or you think you're the right person for that person. Or better anyway. Yeah. You know, as much as I love Tim and he's my brother, Landry's the better guy for. That's why I just wrote down Tyra, date Landry with six exclamation points. Yeah. Just make the right choice. Date this sweet boy who adores you. It's tough because I think as we get older, you know, I mean, I've always said that relationships are kind of like an elevator and sometimes you meet on the same floor, but sometimes it's just people are just passing. And, and... You are full of analogies. You didn't know this about me? I'm the king of analogies. No, I did. It's just, yeah. I love them. I do have to say, I loved the entire last scene of this episode, but also just the last moment. I agree. How it just sort of sits mm -hmm. that Tammy's made this decision and that it just sits. Yeah. You know, as I said, I've watched this show, but I haven't watched it in 10 years. And there's a lot of little moments that I just, I don't remember that well. But this is just a, a beautiful ending. By the way, our producer, Miranda Parham, brought this up. It juxtaposes the top of this episode where Coach and Tammy start out in bed together. And the end of the episode, they ended up separate from one another, which I guarantee you that was on purpose. I also want to give a big shout out to Jeffrey Reiner, who directed this episode, and specifically W.G. Snuffy Walden on their wonderful music choice. The song Storm by Jose Gonzalez is playing in the background, and it's haunting. All you've got is just an acoustic 
acoustic guitar and vocals, and it just gives me chills when I listen to it. And it's kind of underscoring this this whole entire moment with Coach and Tammy. It leaves you wondering at the end of the episode. And we've seen them argue, we've seen them fight, we've seen them get through pretty much anything. But this, I don't know that they're going to weather this. It's the first time on this show where I'm legitimately concerned about their future. It leaves you in this moment where you're like, what's going to happen with these two? I mean, yeah. you can't have Coach gone. I guess we'll find out. We're going to have to find out. But now I'm really excited to get into episode 22 and talk about that. Here's another thing too, Stace. I wanted to talk about the title of this episode, Best Laid Plans, because we all know that comes from the saying, the best laid plans of mice and men often turn awry. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Coach goes into this with the best of intentions. His intentions and his plans are, hey, I'm just going to go coach at TMU and everything's going to work out because that's what I want to do. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the episode, that your wants and desires and needs and dreams have to meet up with the person that you're with. God, it's true for Lila and Street too. Yeah. Like that just goes across the board. Man, these writers are good. They really are. All these ideas and all these dreams and goals and aspirations that all these people had, it all kind of comes crashing down in this episode. What's going to happen next? What happens next? Where do we go? So yeah, I think that's the end of this episode, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. But please join us next time on episode 22 with our special guest, Taylor Kitsch. That's right. Taylor Kitsch <sighs> is going to be on the show. My brother, everybody's favorite Riggins. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, you guys tell me it on all the time. But yeah, we're so <laughs> excited to have Taylor on. We're going to do a really special episode with him to close out season one of Friday Night Lights. So until then, clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't, can't lose. lose. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mandy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to clearEyesFullHeartsPod at gmail.com. Find us on social media. I'm Stacey Oristano on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Derek Phillips on Twitter and underscore Derek Phillips on Instagram. And check out our websites, ClearEyesFullHeartsPod.com, Cadence13.com, and BlackBarrelMedia.com. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week.